The Holocaust is the darkest chapter in all of human history. FDR's response to the Holocaust is certainly the most controversial thing in all of American Jewish history. In this episode, we're going to look at FDR's response. What did he know? When did he know about it? And what could he have done? As always, please like and share this episode, and do us a favor and leave us a comment. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Meth. Just as way of introduction, I always like to share a Torah thought to sort of set the tone, the theme for the discussion tonight. Um, if you take note at some of the great tragedies in the Torah narrative, the biblical narratives, take, for example, Sin of the Golden Calf. Sin of the Golden Calf, probably heard of it, know the basics. Jews, after receiving the Torah at Sinai, there's the sin, the golden calf. And it was a national tragedy. And the entire Jewish people are held accountable and responsible and are punished. Yet, if you read the verses, as elucidated by the Medrash as well, but the verse itself points out how many people were actually involved in the sin. The answer, the Torah says, it says, Kishalosh Elef, around, not even exactly, but around approximately 3,000 people. So 3,000 people mess up, 3,000 people are involved in the sin, and the entire nation is punished severely. Nation of 2 million people, let's say, 3,000 people make a mistake, and you're going to tell me a whole nation gets punished. What, what do they do wrong? Judaism, we don't, you're not, there's no such thing as guilty by association. That guy sins, it's not my problem. I'm accountable for my actions, not for that guy's actions. And all the commentaries essentially explain the reason why everyone is held responsible and the Jews are collectively uh, punished is because even though you may not have been a participant, you were an accomplice. You could have said something and stopped what was going on. That was the big tragedy of the sin of the golden calf. It wasn't so much the Avodah the idolatry that the Jews participated, although that was egregious. Part of the crime, perhaps the biggest part of the crime, was the fact that here you have a whole nation that could have said something that, to some degree, somehow could have stopped it and did it. You know, that's a crime as well. And that's an important lesson in life in general. And that's specifically an important lesson when it comes to tonight's discussion. You know, tonight we're going to pick up um, the story of FDR and the Jews beginning in June of 1941 and really moving through the, the horrors and those difficult, the darkest chapter in human history is the story of the Holocaust. We're going to try to figure out what was FDR's role, what did he know, what did he not know, when did he know it, what could he have done, what could he not have done. And we're going to try to get some of the details. It's easy to kind of paint everything in a broad stroke and just say everyone's guilty and everyone's innocent or no one could have done anything. So obviously it's, it's case by case and requires a subtle study. But we have to keep in mind this critical lesson is someone who has the ability to do something. If we're around and we see a wrong, an injustice, and we can get up and, and realistically do something, you know, that's an important an important responsibility. Okay, so in June 1941, the Hitler makes the what would actually be his ultimate undoing, the biggest mistake of his uh, his insane career. He invades Russia. 
If you were at the explanatory service a couple of weeks ago, we talked about why he waited to June. He should have actually invaded. His plan was to invade more like in March or April, but he, he delayed by about six weeks, you know, because he wanted to, to destroy Czechoslovakia, why, why he wanted to do that, or Yugoslav, why he wanted to do that for different, for different discussion. Um, but he ends up invading Russia a little too late. It's eventually going to get swallowed up by the cold Russian winter in Moscow in, in, in uh, December of, 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 uh, of 41, then beginning in 42, and get bogged down in the Soviet Union. That would ultimately be his undoing, but it would, just take, it would still take many years for that to play out. Following Hitler, right behind Hitler and the, and the Wehrmacht and the, you know, their, the soldiers, was uh, Himmler and, and, the, and the, well, they were called the Einsatzgruppen. Hitler had already decided he wanted to exterminate the Jews. He hadn't yet put together his master plan of how he was going to do that. So as the Germans went deeper into Russia, behind the army, you had the Einsatzgruppen. These were the mobile killing units, um, which were gruesome beyond anything the world had ever seen. Um, but they were mobile. They were inefficient. They weren't industrial. These were these vans. These, you know, execution squads, uh, and they were ruthless and, and horrific. And, and tonight we're not going to go through Holocaust history so much, but suffice it to say, the Holocaust can really be divided into two, you know, maybe even three categories. You have pre-extermination and then the actual extermination parts of the Holocaust, the final solution. So you have this first stage where you had the mobile killing units. And that begins in, let's say, June of 41, July of 41. But it wouldn't be till January of 42 at the Wannsee Conference um, where Hitler and his insane colleagues would really develop the industrial, the idea of putting together industrial killing centers. So while Auschwitz did exist, it wasn't really an industrial killing center. It was more slave labor uh, and things like that. It was, you know, uh, it was a concentration camp. Concentration, by the way, people get confused. Concentration camp means that's a place to concentrate people. Most of the concentration camps, all of the concentration camps up until 1942, these were just gigantic detention centers. It wouldn't begin, it wouldn't be until after January 42 where some of these sites would become industrial killing places. Um, you know, Auschwitz at the top. When does FDR find out about it? When does the United States find out about what's going on? Hitler was very quiet. Um, it's, it's very in contradistinction to, let's say, terrorists of nowadays. When they commit atrocities, they want the whole world to know so that their terror, the fear, can be spread around the world. Hitler was very private about his killing. He was actually somewhat self-conscious by world opinion, which is kind of perverse. It wouldn't be until August of 42, it wouldn't be until August of 42, where, you know, there, take that back, there were some slight rumors of atrocities. People knew that Jews were being relocated. Jews were being sent east. If you lived in Germany, they were being sent east. But no one really knew what was going on. People suspected the worst, but they were all just a bunch of rumors. It wasn't until August of 1942, where a fellow named Gerhard Rigner who is the office manager of the World Jewish Congress in Geneva, was indirectly informed about the German plans of, ex of extermination 
Um, he was tipped off by a German industrialist named Edward Schulte, and he learned about the horrors of what was going on. And he wired from Geneva, he wired to the State Department and, and, and to, for that matter, to Great, Great Britain, the following message. Received alarming reports stating that in the Fuhrer's headquarters, a plan has been discussed and is under consideration, according to which all Jews in countries, countries occupied or controlled by Germany, numbering three and a half to four million, should, after deportation and concentration in the East, that means Poland, be at, be at one blow exterminated in order to resolve once and for all the Jewish question in Europe. Action is reported to be planned for the autumn. Ways of execution are still being discussed, including the use of Prusik acid. We know that they would end up using Zyklone B, which was some, some form. I think it, this is accurate. We transmit this information with all the necessary, necessary reservation, as exactitude cannot be confirmed by us. Our informant is reported to have closed connections with the highest German authorities, and his reports are generally reliable. Please inform and consult New York. Um, Consult New York, man, meant please sent this to our good friend, uh, Rabbi Wise, Rabbi Stephen Wise. So the State Department gets this telegram. They don't know what to do with it. What should they do? So the first thing they did with it is they sat on it for a couple of weeks, tried to backhandedly investigate is this true, is it not true? They didn't do anything. And their first reaction, their secondary reaction is, to what is it's a wild rumor fueled by Jewish anxieties. Eventually, they decide they're going to pass it on to Rabbi Wise. Rabbi Stephen Wise, who we've talked about, is not, not one of my biggest fans. I'm not one of his biggest fans. Um, and he's told about it in late August. Sumner Wells, who's the Undersecretary of State under Cordell Hull, asks Wise not to publicize it. It's going to create too much of a tumult. We can't confirm it. We don't know. Let's wait and see. Wise sits on it for September, October, and November. And he wouldn't go ahead. It wasn't until November, virtually almost three months later, where, and by this time, Wigner is in, you know, he thinks he's just saved the world and no one's saying anything. You know, he's in terrible agony of what's going on. Um, but eventually, Wise holds a press conference. He gets permission after asking permission from Wells, and Wells says, I guess it's okay for you to release it, but don't blame it on the State Department. We're not confirming. Wise holds a big pompous press release, press you know, uh, conference, and it's covered by the media. Now, the rumor is that the media never covered the Holocaust. Well, that's not, not true. We've talked about the media did cover many of the atrocities, but beginning really now, in, four, in, uh, in November of 41, um, I'm sorry, in November of 42, Pardon me. Um, in November 42, when Wise actually publicizes with a big press conference all the horrors of what's going on. So right now, and if you think about it, it's a sensational story. Industrial killing centers, entire race. The word genocide, by the way, you're not going to see it being used very often because it wasn't a word. It wasn't a thing. No one had ever heard of such a concept. That was a term that was coined as you know the Holocaust you know, continues. But it was such a sensational story. Much has been said about the press's lack of coverage. 
The press did cover it. They covered Wise's news, news conference. However, it tended to be buried in back of the paper and received little coverage. Didn't get no coverage, it got little coverage. Why? Two reasons. Number one, good old-fashioned anti-Semitism. But number two, probably the biggest reason, is the State Department never confirmed it. So if you're the New York Times, you're the Washington Post, and some rabbi you know, stands up and says some scandalous thing is happening, you're taking a, a risk by publishing this as a fact. You don't know. You have no way of corroborating. You, you haven't yet corroborated it. So it received very little press coverage and didn't get the sensationalism that a story like that should have received. If you recall, Kristallnacht was heavily covered in the press because that was everyone. Everyone knew about that. But the, the Regner telegram, Wise's press conference, got very little. Um, in December of 42, Wise, you know, he sees that the government, FDR is silent on it, the State Department's silent on it, and clearly the Jewish community is terribly agitated. As we're going to read it, we're going to talk about Sharon in a moment. The Orthodox circles, the, the, you had something called the Vat HaTzala, the Agudas Arabanim, when Rav Kalmanovich, who was one of the, the, the leading rabbis of the day, when he heard the news the next day of the Rigner telegram, he fainted. You know, this is, you know, the greatest calamity in the history of our people. And the government's doing nothing. FDR implores, I'm sorry, Wise implores FDR to meet four rabbis, four dignitaries, to talk, to see what we can, we can do. FDR wasn't sure, yes, no. And Wise pressured him and, and assured him that if you meet these dignitaries, these rabbis, it would do a lot for public good. We could say FDR cares, he's involved. Um, he meets them, including Rabbi Rosenberg from the Aguda. Um, for those who are aware, it's an interesting halacha, interesting Jewish law, is there is an ancient tradition, goes back, it's obviously sourced in the Talmud, that if upon seeing a king, there's a special prayer that's recited. It's a special benediction, a bracha, a special blessing that's recited. Rabbi Rosenberg was probably the only rabbi there who actually knew the prayer, <laughs> which is sadly the truth. Um, he asked FDR if he'd be okay if, if he recited this prayer. Um, I'll bet you it's in the art scroll sitter. You don't have one over here. I'll bet you it's in the back in the art scroll sitter. It's a prayer. If you see, and there's a big disagreement. You say it on a president. is president the same as the king. So the story is well documented. He said the prior, and FDR was moved. He said FDR was very moved and touched that he recited, recited the prior. FDR was sympathetic. He was sympathetic. He, he was, presumably genuinely, but he was noncommittal. And he told the rabbis what would be his catch line, what would be his entire approach, at least for the first half of the war which was, we need to win the war. This is January, this, this takes place in December of 42. So this is after Pearl Harbor. The United States is building up their, you know, their army and they're focused on one thing, win the war. And this would be, FDR, this is an important point. You want to sum up FDR's approach to the Holocaust for the first half of the United States, at least through the late 43, early 44. 
FDR's approach to how we're going to deal with the Holocaust is I'm sympathetic. It's an outrage. It's a tragedy. The best thing we can do for the Jews is focus exclusively on beating the Germans, on winning the war. And that was, and, and everything else is secondary. Now, in all fairness, and this is an, a very important point when we talk about FDR, we talk about the United States in general, even when later on in the war, and FDR will be a little bit more involved and take a, and, and put re- rescue as a little bit of a higher priority or, or a priority, it's always important to remember the fundamental difference between the Allies, the United States, FDR, and the Nazis and Hitler. For the United States and for FDR, rescuing the Jews was very, very important. But it was at best, even when FDR gets a little bit more involved later in the war, at best, it's a secondary war goal. At best. Their primary job, their primary goal is win the war. That is not the case with Hitler. One of the most perplexing and, and mind-boggling and tragic elements of World War II is that late in the war, when the Germans are clearly losing the football game, and they're clearly losing the war, and they need every ounce of resource, of energy, of munitions, everything that they got to win the war, and they will be constantly diverting men, trucks, scarce fuel, every, you know, all sorts of supplies to exterminate Jews. And it's bewildering. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're going to lose the war if you divert all those resources. And the answer critically, and this is fundamental to understand, is that for Hitler and for the Nazis, destruction of the Jews was a primary goal of World War II. You know, if we lose the war, you know, we, that's not great. We want to win the war. But if we're able to kill another Jew, we're able to, to wreak as much destruction against the Jews, you know, that's a victory, a primary victory. If you don't recognize that, you're never going to be able to understand. And it's, it's twisted. It's bizarre. It's, it's, it's evil. But that's, it's a fact. And that explains a lot of Hitler and the Nazis' behavior you know, towards the end of the war. Always keep that in mind. For however much you know, we might not like what FDR did or that he didn't do enough, he could have done more, he should have done more. There was, at best, rescuing Jews was always a secondary goal. Winning the war was the top priority. And again, in the first half of the war, beginning with the Regner telegram um, um, uh, in August of 42, moving well into, let's say, late 43 or early 44, FDR would tell you everything. The only thing we can focus on is win the war, win the war. Um, On top of that, it's very important to point out, up until 44, what could FDR have done? What could he have done? The answer is nothing, right? They have no, they have no military personnel, no military assets that in theory, even if they would have made rescuing Jews the top priority, you know, D-Day isn't, you know, that's not until, you know, June 6th of 44. That's not going to be for, for quite some time. You know, they would first start in Northern Africa, maybe by sometime in 43 or early 44, you know, perhaps some of their airplanes could have reached Auschwitz 
which we'll talk about later. But for the first half of the Holocaust, first two thirds of the Holocaust, even if they would have made rescuing Jews a military priority, there was nothing that they could do. They just didn't have the assets there. They wouldn't even invade Europe for several more years. That's a very important, in all fairness to FDR, that point needs to be uh, considered greatly. Thoughts, questions? Okay. The government, after the Regner telegram, month after infuriating month after month, the State Department, FDR, are silent on the Holocaust. No public, really virtually nothing, no confirmation of what's going on. Um, And again, all they talk about is winning the war. In April of 43, to FDR's half credit, there was a proposal to put together another international conference to discuss the Holocaust and talk about rescue efforts. What can be done? If you recall, it was last week or the week before, we discussed the Evian conference. Remember that? We talked about Evian France and they, everyone, the big international conference. And it's important to remember, right? We talked about it, what happened. And the, the I'm sorry, I'll just him in. Um, we talked about how not much really happened after Evian. There were talks about trying to get the Dominican Republic, Latin America, some options there. Nothing really came of the Evian conference, but at least it was done in good faith. There really were genuine attempts to, again, this is before the final solution, what can we do to resolve and relieve the refugee crisis? Evian was done perhaps incompetently, but it at least it was done uh, with the sense of real, you know, let's really try to solve the problem. The Bermuda conference was a total joke. It was a total joke. It was a conference. They did it specifically in Bermuda. That way it would be hard to get to. There wouldn't be as much press com- coverage and you know, the press to expose how they really weren't doing anything. There was nothing really that was considered. As a matter of fact, FDR had a very hard time finding a, someone to lead the United States delegation because no one wanted the job because you knew it was, it was a sham. It was a joke. It was, uh, it was, it was all a charade. Um, Tragically, ironically, the Bermuda Conference wraps up uh, Passover, April time of 1943, which tragically or ironically is exactly when, I think it was the last day of the conference, was the day of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Um, And much contrast has been made while a bunch of dignitaries are, you know, you know, drinking cocktails in Bermuda, you know, not doing anything. You know, here you have Jews burning to death, you know, trying, you know, to, to do something. It's interesting is that there was a, f- a fellow named Shmuel Ziegelbaum, who was actually part of the, the, the Polish, I recall he was part of the Polish government, who was in exile in Great Britain. Um, he commits suicide the day after the Bermuda Conference uh, wraps up. And he writes a note. Apparently his wife and daughter were killed in, war, in, the, in, in the ghetto. And his note was not so much, he, he was not so much at infuriation at the Nazis, but he said, let my death be a condemnation and indictment against the whole world, you know, just watching and doing nothing while, while countless millions are dying. And actually that received a lot of, that, that shook a lot of people. I want to talk about 
a very interesting character who now comes onto the scene in the United States, who's a significant person when it comes to rescue efforts and, you know, the Holocaust and trying to get things done. His name was Peter Bergson. Peter Bergson. His real name was Hillel Cook. He was actually the nephew of Rabbi Avraham Cook, the chief rabbi of Israel, first rabbi of of Israel, Uh, unlike his uncle, who was a very pious, somewhat of a controversial person, but definitely well-respected by everyone. Um, Hillel Cook, he, he, moves to, he moves to the United States and takes on the name Peter Bergson, supposedly because he doesn't want to defame his uncle's name, um, because he was not a religious person and would go on to live a very, he, only, he died only a couple of years, like in, 2000, in the early 2000s, a very interesting, controversial person. In the beginning of the war, Peter Bergson puts together something called the Committee for a Jewish Army of Stateless and Palestinian Jews, right? He tries, what he's going to try to do, he had this, you know, crazy scheme, harebrained scheme. He's going to put together a Jewish army representing who? Jews. Where? Stateless. It was a bit of a harebrained scheme and nothing really came of it. But after the Riedner telegram and after the, the horrors of the Holocaust come to light, Bergson decides he is going to be an activist to try to raise awareness, to try to get the country riled up that we need to do more to rescue the Jews. Keep in mind, Wise, Stephen Wise, who's America's rabbi, he's also FDR. He he kisses up to FDR. FDR has been win the war, win the war, win the war. And Wise has been right behind him, win the war, win the war, win the war. So no one's agitating the country. No one's agitating the government. You got to do more than that. You know, just win the war, win the war, win the war. Jews are being sent to their death. You need to have that sense of urgency. There's more that potentially could be done, or at least you can explore other options. That wasn't happening. Those voices weren't being heard because Wise, that's why I don't like him, and I think he's very guilty, was just pissed up to FDR. And FDR, you know, that was his approach. And F- and Wise, um, he valued access. He didn't want to rock the boat with FDR because after all, he's FDR's rabbi. And that's a very, that's a cool job. And if he starts pushing back, he might lose that access. Peter Burton, on March 9th in 43, um, they call them Burkson boys or the Burksonites, this little group, which turned into a very big group. They put on this huge production Whereas Stephen Wise, was, he's constantly putting together rallies at MSG in Madison Square Garden. So Bergson says two can play at that game. And he puts together a production. It's like a play. I actually was listening to some of it. I, I don't know if there's video of it, but there's audio of it. Uh, it's kind of haunting a little bit. He put together this play, this production. It was called a pageant. It was called We Will Never Die, memorializing the two million European Jews um, who had already been murdered. and. Thousands, tens of thousands of people went to participate. The big one was at MS, MSG, Madison Square Garden, but he did this play down in DC, in LA, in a couple of places throughout the country. And it was put together by, again, before my time, Ben Hecht, who was, I think he was a, a big Hollywood star or a celebrity at the time. He was on that put it together. And it really, it created, a, it was a PR success. Eleanor Roosevelt, was uh, you know behind it was very went to see it um, 
I have, you know, six Supreme Court justices, 300 senators and congressmen watched it. Um, and it really created that agitation. You know, Wise was infuriated. He felt and he saw that Bergson was competition, whereas Wise was just, you know, do whatever FDR says. And Bergson was an agitator uh, that created fiction. Um, interesting. And, and, and Bergson was, is going to be the agitator. After We Will Never Die, later on, there was, uh, at one point, there was a harebrained scheme. It, historians debate whether it was a real scheme or not. Uh, whether there, there was any truth to it. But Romania, which was a sat satellite uh, you know, of, of the Nazis, at one point were willing to send their Jews to safety if the travel expenses would be provided for them. For their, I think it was something like 70,000 Jews. And the, the, it was sent through an intermediary. Nothing ever happened with it. It fizzled out. Bergson takes a full-page ad in the New York Times in big block letters, for sale to humanity, 70,000 Jews, guaranteed human beings at $50 a piece, right? Obviously deliberately there, like to try to like sensationalize. He was very successful. Wise hates it, FDR hated it, but it really started stirring the pot. David Wyman, I don't have his book here, but uh, Dave Wyman, who had the abandonment of the Jews, is really considered one of the great scholars. He is not a big fan, pardon me, not a fan of FDR and less of a fan of Stephen Wise, would say the following. Despite the frequent obstruction by the modern American Jewish establishment, um, that, you know, Cook's rescue group's activism was the major factor in the establishment of the War Refugee Board, which we're going to see in a moment. His work paid off. The agitation, the publicity made a difference. Before we get to the War Refugee Board, there's one other, so we got the Berksonites, the Berkson boys, and his agitation. There was another group, which is a bit of a minor, a, 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 it's a significant group, but it's certainly small um, compared to Berkson, although they worked together with Berkson and significantly smaller than Wise. Um, and that would be, well, you know, I wanna first, maybe there's another group. There's another small group, a, one of the great antagonists of Stephen Wise was another reform rabbi, Abba Hillel Silver. Abba Hillel Silver was a reform rabbi. He was a Republican. He was on the other side politically, and he hated Silver. I'm sorry, he hated Wise. However, he wasn't quite as much of an agitator as Bergson, because whereas Wise was back to FDR, win the war, win the war, win the war, Abba Hillel Silver's you know, cry was Israel, Israel, Israel. We have to do everything that we can. He was, the, he was a big Zionist, which was more than what Wise was doing. But the problem was no one was saying, save the Jews in Europe. That was the key message that wasn't being heard. Bergson was trying to scream that. There was a third group, fourth group. And by the way, if it's confusing to have all these inter-warring, you know, Jewish groups. This would become a big, big problem. There were many voices and the, and the Jewish community, not, the American Jewish community certainly was not speaking with one coherent voice. You had many people going in many, many different directions. There was another group. I've recommended this book several times. <laughs> um, this is a phenomenal book. It's, it's called Fire in His Soul. About, by Irving, it's about Irving Bunim. The book was written by his son, Amos Bunim, who I knew. He, Amos Bunim's daughter was the Rebbitz in the community that I grew up, so I knew Amos 
I knew Amos Bunim was a remarkable person. And he writes this book, A Fire in His Soul. It's the story of his father, Irving Bunim. First half, Irving Bunim was a businessman, successful Jew. And um, at one point, I mean, during the war in the 30s and the early 40s, he was one of the most vocal people in the group called the Vad Hatzalah. The Vad Hatzalah. Vad means an organization, a group. Hatzalah means rescue. This is the rescue group, the rescue agency. The Vad Hatzalah was, was run by Orthodox rabbis. Uh, most notably, the head would be the great Rabbi Aaron Cutler. You may have heard of Rabbi Aaron Cutler. Zatzal. Rabbi Aaron Cutler was, he's long story how, but he escaped uh, Lithuania right at the onset of the war. He comes to America, doesn't speak a word of English, and would run the Vat Hatzalah as kind of like the rabbinic uh, guide behind the Vat Hatzalah. Now, later on, he would go and at, it was really kind of at the same time, or immediately after the war, he would start a small little yeshiva in, in a remote, sleepy town in New Jersey called Lakewood. Lakewood, New Jersey. If anyone knows anything about Lakewood, New Jersey, Lakewood, New Jersey today now has probably the biggest yeshiva, uh, certainly in the last millennia, uh, probably in the history of the world. Thousands and thousands of students learn in the Lakewood yeshiva. It's called BMG, Beth Medrash Kavoa. It was founded by Rabbi Cutler. His grandson, Ramakiel Cutler, is the head of the yeshiva today. He's a remarkable man. Remarkable man. The Vad Hatzala with uh, Mr. Butum and, and Rabbi Cutler, as well as Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, all the big rabbis of the day, and all the, it was a who's who of just remarkable people were part of the Vad Hatzala. Um, you know, they, you know, they worked to whatever degree they could work with lies, they would. They found a more natural ally with Bergson because Bergson was an agitator and the Vad Hatzala didn't care about access. Rabbi Cutler cared about one thing, Hatzala, rescue, save Jews. And I don't care if it makes FDR look bad. I'm not looking to make him look bad. We need to save Jews. They were singularly laser focused on one thing and one thing alone. That was save Jews. We've talked about and alluded to the fact, if I could just read one passage in this book, just to, if we can throw Stephen Wise under the bus. After about 1935, what Wise was unable to be critical of or even objective about the president. He was convinced, this is actually a quote, this is a secondary quote from David Wyman. He, he was convinced that FDR was personally anxious to help the persecuted European Jews in the 1930s, that he wanted to do everything possible to rescue Jews during the Holocaust years, and that he fully, though quietly, supported the Zionist movement. These assessments were wide of the mark and should have been recognized as such at the time. In retrospect, in view of Wise's position as the foremost Jewish leader, his total trust in Roosevelt was not an, an, ass, was not an asset to American or European Jewry. That's Wyman's indictment um, of his indictment of, of Stephen Wise. We've mentioned in the past that there was one Jew in FDR's cabinet. The Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau. Now, Morgenthau, up to this point, didn't take a very active role in rescue. I mean, he was obviously pro-Jewish and wanted to do whatever he can, but he wasn't considered like the a powerful force in terms of Jewish relief and rescue. Bunum, through the Vadat Salah, um, was able to build a relationship with Morgenthau. And he tells an incredible story over here. Um, that at one point, 
uh, he was able to schedule a meeting with Ryan Cutler, Rav Kalmanovich, and Isaac and, and uh, Irving Bunum. Um, so they met. Um, Morgan that was blown away just seeing Rav Iron Cutler. Rav Iron Cutler didn't speak a word of English. I don't know if Morgan now spoke Yiddish. I doubt it. I highly doubt it. His, he was second generation American. Um, but he was blown away by Rav Iron Cutler. If you knew Rav Iron Cutler was a fiery person, a very passionate person. Morgan Thau was visibly moved. They were trying to get on his case to be a little bit more active. There was some scheme about some issue of rescue, trying to get some visas for, for someone, and the State Department was giving him trouble. Morgan now calls Cordell Hall. Summoner Wells, the assistant secretary, undersecretary, answers the phone and tells, tells him that, that Secretary Hall is out of town and can't be reached. So I'm going to read just one, uh, one um, paragraph. Tell Mr. Hall, said the tight-lipped Morgenthau, that I am waiting at the telephone for an answer. I want a meeting with the president concerning the Nazi murder of Jews in Europe. Um, Wells said he would see the secretary, see the message. Um, uh, calls him back, says very delicate negotiations are in process with Germany. And at this particular time, it would not be advisable to jeopardize them by introducing an extra extraneous matter. Hull, Sumner Wells, tell Morgenthau, you know, we're on it. You stick to treasury. We'll, we'll run the State Department. Butum and the others saw secretaries mount, the secretary's mounting anger. He gets on the phone and he says, tell Mr. Hull he says to Sumner Wells, that this is the first time in my service to the government that I have ever asked the president for a meeting on a personal matter, one regarding my own, my relationship with my people. If I do not get the meeting as requested, my resignation will be on Mr. Roosevelt's desk in the morning. He pulled, he put all of his poker chips into the middle of the table. He got the meeting, whatever it was, it ended up not working out. But this, I believe, just putting a lot of things together, I think this was a turning point uh, in the history of, of rescue. Because Morgenthau at that point became an ally. He became a friend and an ally, and he's going to change FDR. <clears throat> the Von Hatzala, and we're going we're gonna to get back to that in a moment. So the Von Hatzala is now, you know, on the scene. Bergson, sensing an ally with the Von Hatzala, puts together in October of 43, in October of 43, a march of rabbis on Washington to, again, try to agitate, get the public aware. A march on Washington of 400 rabbis. Almost all of them were Orthodox rabbis. Um, this would be the only protest of like a rabbinic protest uh, during the entire Holocaust. Um, the rabbis were received at the steps of the Capitol by the Senate majority and minority leaders, Speaker of the House. They said some prayers, and then they went to the Lincoln Memorial. Then they marched to the White House to plead that they wanted to meet with FDR so that they can go ahead and, and share their concerns. They were informed that the president was busy all day and were instead received by the vice, by the vice, vice president, Henry Wallace. What was the president doing that day? Nothing. Why didn't he meet with the rabbis? The answer is, is because Stephen Wise and Sam Rosenman claimed that the protesting rabbis, many of whom were Orthodox and recent immigrants, and you know had their long coats and long beards, 
and were not, these are their words, not representative of American Jewry. Um, calling it a propaganda stunt and Wise had some real negative thing to say. If uh, a classic example of, of what was back then, thank God doesn't exist so much nowadays, but back then was, uh, a, I would say it as it is, bigoted anti-orthodoxy that was apparent in many of the, of the not all, but many of the reform leadership um, of the day in the 40s. Uh, it was a tragedy. Um, the march got a lot of attention. FDR misstepped. It was a mistake, not, not, meeting, not meeting with the rabbis. The papers all picked up on it. And the headline in the Washington Times said, rabbis re- report cold welcome at the White House. Um, would a similar delegation of 500 Catholic priests have been thus treated? And it was a big black eye for FDR. Because of all this publicity, the rabbis march, Bergson, the Van Hatzalah, and probably most importantly, Morgenthau. Beginning halfway through the war, things change. At the end of 1943, Morgenthau, who's now on the team, so I just want to stop here. Thoughts, questions before we move on to this next critical piece. Okay. Morgenthau in 43 puts together a document called, and the title in and of itself is scandalous. And this is a, a document that he forwarded to FDR. Report to the secretary on the acquiescence of this government in the murder of the Jews. A report on the acquiescence of this government, the United States, the acquiescence of our government in the murder of the Jews. Um, In the document, it says that the State Department was guilty not only of gross procrastination and willful failure to act, but even of willful attempts to prevent action from being taken to to, to, to rescue Jews from Hitler. Roosevelt listened to the, he didn't read it, but he he got an oral summary of the report and FDR was moved. And beginning at the end of 43 and beginning of 44, FDR starts singing a different tune. Where up to the beginning of 44, it was always win the war, win the war, win the war. FDR now starts playing a more active role when it comes to rescue, being a little bit more sympathetic in an active way. And the most tangible thing that would emerge from the Morgenthau report and from all this activism was the War Refugee Board. The War Refugee Board was, came into law on January 22nd, so right in the beginning of 44. And it consisted of three cabinet members, Cornell Hall of State, who was no good, uh, Secretary of War Henry Stimson, who was too busy, and Morgenthau. Effectively, it was run by Morgenthau. The per- that was the board. The actual deputy, the person who ran the War Refugees War Refugee Board, was deliberately chosen as someone who's deliberately not going to be Jewish. You have to remember, there was this very delicate balance when it came to any elements of relief, rescue, refugee crisis. There was a very delicate balance that FDR had to, had to take because the, the Nazis wanted to stoke the anti-Semitism in the United States. And they kept their propaganda throughout the whole war, even before the war. But after, after, after Pearl Harbor, they kept on calling it the, their propaganda to get the United States, the population of the United States, to back down. Because they kept on calling it the Jew War. It's President Rosenfeld, you know, led by his Jewish cabinet. And, you know, why is the United States fighting Germany? You're just run by this 
You know, the Protocols of Elders of Zion, it's run by, the, run by the Jews. It's the only reason why you're at war. So FDR did everything he could. It was a very tricky thing. Even when he becomes sympathetic and wants to get involved in issues of rescue and relief, he has to be very careful of not, and this is like just a horrible situation, of not turning it into, we're saving the Jews. Because the more public he is that we're saving the Jews, the more the Nazis are able to spin that PR. You see, the war is all about saving the Jews. Your kids are going overseas and dying in this war to save a bunch of Jews. Why do you want this guy? Vote him out of office. Keep in mind, 44 is an election year. Right? So Roosevelt's got to deal with this very delicately. So they deliver, he deliberately has to run the War Refugee Board a non-Jew, a fellow named uh, John Pelly, who, who's actually a very good man. And the War Refugee Board would be the one um, you know, positive thing that the United States really did. Uh, at the end, it would be run by, uh, by General William O'Dwyer. The WRB, the War Refugee Board, worked closely with private U.S. relief agencies in formulating, financing, and executing plans and projects. It was a tiny organization. They had a teeny staff, and FDR didn't want to have to go to Congress to get money to fund the War Refugee Board, because asking Congress for money would probably not work, because Congress was conflicted. On the one hand, they were very sympathetic to the Jews, but on the other hand, they had to be you know, deal with their, con- their constituents, who many of them were not. It was essentially funded by a lot of, by private donations. What did the War Refugee Board do? Uh, it used the Treasury Department to license, using licensing policies, permitting the establishment of private agencies to transfer funds in the United States to representatives in neutral countries. This was very important. There were neutral countries which were getting refugees. People, if Jews were able to escape, and go to neutral part, neutral countries, the War Refugee Board would allow the transfer of private funds for relief efforts to these Jews who had gotten away. Why is that important? It's very important because the Jews are able to escape. Any Jews who are able to go, go flee to neutral countries, Switzerland, Turkey for a while, and places like that, these countries, if they were now burdened by all these refugees financially, they're disincentivized to continue being a haven to allow refugees to come. So by allowing, by the War Refugee Board, by allowing using, you know, the Treasury Department, you know, transferring money internationally at this time was very tricky because of the war. So that was one of the things that they did. Um, and they were very successful. One of the other interesting, it's a, a little bit of a footnote in, in American history, but it's, it's, it's worth mentioning. One of the ideas that FDR had, um, and again, which makes him such a confusing person, because he really was sympathetic to the Jewish suffering. He had this one idea, and it went through the War Refugee Board, which was, look, immigration was a disaster, as we've seen. It was no immigration for most of the 30s, 38, 39, a couple of Jews were let in. By 1441, the State Department had shut that down again. Immigration was a, a very difficult and, and, and tricky thing to work around. FDR had this great idea. You know, right now we have a, there's a shipping crisis, right? We go, oh, all the Amazon, everything's back ordered because we're sitting on a boat somewhere off of San Francisco because we can't get anything into, into a port. There's an idea, again, I don't know much about commerce and shipping and regulations, 
But if a boat just needs to dock, let's say it's en route to get to, who knows, Greece. And for whatever reason, it needs to dock um, for repairs in the United States. So there's something called the free port. You can, in theory, the boat can dock in San Francisco, in you know, Baltimore, wherever it may be, you know, the boat will just, it's not allowed entry into the country. You're not going to get any kind of, you know, um, immigration visa or travel visa. It's like a very temporary thing. You're just here. You're not really here for any, any real amount of time. It's just so you can fix your boat and move on. So you have this great idea. What if we could do free ports, not for, for boats and cargo and merchandise, but for Jews? We're just going to have them settle here live in a concentration camp for that matter, you know, uh, you know, in cages down in, 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 you know, on the border and they're not here. It's just like they were on a port. And then when the war, once the war clears up and there's, they can get back to wherever they need to go to, we'll send them, you know, back on their way. Now that's a dream come true for a Jew, right? That would be a great idea. You know, again, I'm not to get into politics today, but, you know, if Jews to be sent in, into detention centers in the United States would, would actually be a, a tremendous salvation. The plan actually came into fruition, but only in, it only saved about 900 Jews. The plan came together in, uh, it was called the Fort Ontario Emergency Refugee Shelter in Oswego, New York, upstate New York. And there was this detention center. It wasn't like a jail. It was a detention center of sorts. There were barracks, places to live, but they weren't really allowed, you know, to, you know, they couldn't go to Rochester to visit family. You're in this, you know, it doesn't have to be in a port, you know, on the ocean. They were just sent, you know, inland, but in a port where they would be able to, you know, be detained until they were able to, and about 970 Jews were saved that way through the War Refugee Board. Now, interesting, just as, a, as an aside, when those, and those Jews, those Jews lived and they survived the war. Rabbi Laser Silver, not related to Rabbi Abba Hillel Silver. Rabbi Laser Silver was a remarkable, remarkable Jew. He was a rabbi in Cincinnati. He was an Orthodox rabbi. He saw to it that the Jews in Oswego, New York, were, got, got access to kosher food. He built an Erev for them in Fort Ontario, and they built a mikvah. There's a remarkable story in this book, Fire in His Soul, you know, him trying to explain to some Deputy, somebody, what all these religious items, what is a mikvah? It's like a pool. Oh, we know how to build pools. No, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Like, you know, so it's this whole funny, but it actually, it actually happened. Not many Jews were saved, but it does highlight and makes our story that much more complicated and nuanced. If FDR was totally heartless, you know, why did he push this through? The War Refugee Board um, used the example of the Sport Ontario to influence other countries to also allow, allow additional refugees over their borders. North Africa become a safe haven. Palestine, which was complicated, we're not going to get into that now. Switzerland and Sweden. Um, in March 1944, in March of 1944, um, Hitler begins to set his eye on Hungary. Hungary was the last place where, which was somewhat under Hitler's dominance uh, or under Hitler's shadow um, in, during the war, that had a substantial Jewish population. You know, Ben, who's watching, could knows this better than anyone. He was part of that. Um, he was part right. Ben, I, I, 
You were in, in, in Hungary in 44, right? Right. In, Czech, in, in Munkac, right? Right. So my grandmother was there. She was in Munkac as well in Hungary in 44. Hungary was a safe place for most of the war. Hitler sets his eye on, on, on Hungary towards the end of the war. The War Refugee Board was very active in rescue plans and in rescue initiatives for Hungarian Jews. It did a few things. Number one, it issued radio broadcasts, um, first of all, to try to encourage, you know, so that anyone who would listen could hear the radio broadcast, which did two things. Number one, urging Jews to flee if they could, you know, go into hiding, whatever you could, give them warning, you know, that Hitler was coming. And number two, uh, as a deterrent, it threatened anybody who would be an accomplice to Hitler that you're going to pay the price. Don't think that this isn't going unnoticed. That in and of itself, you know, was it effective, was it not, is, is, a, is a critical, you know, question. But it sh- again, it makes our picture of FDR that much more muddled. Because why are they doing this? They, the War Refugee Board, um, Hungary is invaded. The War Refugee Board, probably the most successful thing that they did was it worked together with diplomats that were on the ground in Hungary who could issue visas, who could try to work out, use the diplomatic back channels to get Jews into safety. Switzerland, uh, um, Turkey, perhaps Palestine, all sorts of interesting places. Um, uh, you know, Swedish diplomat, one of the great heroes of the world, Raoul Wallenberg and others to try to figure out how they can get these Jews into other places. Um, they were successful. In total, through the work of the War Refugee Board, um, about 75,000, no, more than that. The, the, the guesstimate, David Wyman in his book, Abandonment of the Jews, which I don't have here, Abandonment of the Jews, David Wyman suggests that directly and indirectly, the War Refugee Board saved about 200,000 Jews in Hungary because of their efforts. Again, giving access and help facilitating these diplomatic back, back channels um, to get, so again, here, oh, here are the numbers. 7,000 7, go to Turkey, 5.3 thousand will actually make it to the United States, 45,000 um, go to the Balkans, um, 14,000 go to the Middle East, and about another 75,000 would just ride it out to the end of the war in, you know, in Hungary and in Budapest, Part of what they did, they started other, you know, we don't have time to go into some of the negotiations that they made. They were able to slow down some of the deportations. And Wyman, Wyman suggests directly and indirectly about 200,000 Jews um, were saved by the War Refugee Board. We're going to end tonight with leaving off. And again, I said, well, I apologize, but we're going to do a part five, I guess, to kind of wrap things up. Um, and I'm going to leave with the following two things or three things. Next week, I want to talk about what's probably on everyone's mind. I know Ben, who's watching, who saw it firsthand. Um, what about bombing the tracks? Bombing the tracks. Bombing the tracks is something that, that when everyone thinks of what could the United States have done more, it's bombing the tracks. It's actually not as controversial in certain ways as people think. So I'd, I'd like to treat that separately next week. I would like to kind of do a final assessment, what my opinions are on FDR. I want to share the theories of Lithman and Brightman. I think their insight 
you know, after they, their book and their kind of their overall thesis, they have a general unifying thesis of FDR, which I actually want to share uh, because I think it's very valuable. Again, share my thoughts and kind of just end with that kind of reiteration of the perplexities of FDR. Now, the War Refugee Board saved, according to Wyman, Wyman's no fan of FDR. Wyman wrote a book called Abandonment of the Jews, which is a, 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 an, an indictment on the world in general, the United States in specific, and FDR uh, with laser focus. And he argues 200,000 Jews were saved. How do we square that with who? Let's keep that. We need to address that. How does, how does that help us try to figure out the kind of person who FDR is? So again, next week, final thoughts on FDR, um, kind of wrap up who, you know, my thoughts on who, who he was. I'm going to go through their thoughts and bombing of the tracks and maybe a couple of other things. That'll be please God for next week. Thank you all for coming. And if anyone has any questions, I'm here to stick around. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.